Well, instead of easing you into our discussion today, what I need you to do with me is to think carefully with me right from the start, because if you miss what the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage, I think you're just getting, it's not going to land with the, the amount of impact that it should, because he is, he's talking about community, but he is framing his discussion about community in a very unique way. Um, see, originally the book of Hebrews, uh, it was a letter, and it wasn't divided into chapters and verses, right? Those were added later for our reference so we could find our place. Um, and on the surface, chapter 13, it looks like a great place to make one of those divides. Um, because at the end of chapter 12, the author's very clearly talking about worship. And then you get to chapter 13 in verse 1, and he's very clearly talking about community. And it looks like on the surface that he's just entirely changed, um, changed subjects here. But the most careful scholars recognize how the author is just in a very unique way setting up his discussion and his comments about community. James Thompson is one of those scholars, and he writes this. The beginning of chapter 13 gives concreteness to the author's call for acceptable worship. In other words, he's saying the way we answer God's call for acceptable worship, chapter 12, verse 28, is by practicing the kind of community he describes in chapter 13. There's a famous place where Jesus made this, this same point. Um, it, it's in what's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And in that sermon, you might remember that Jesus said, if you're coming to worship and you're bringing your gift to the altar and right then before you give your gift at the altar, you suddenly remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Jesus said, stop immediately. Don't go any further with your worship. Leave your gift right there. He said, first, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. See, Jesus and the author of Hebrews, they're really saying the same thing. They're saying there's a vital connection between your worship and your relationships. Between worship that's acceptable and the practice of community. Um, so let me, let me put it maybe even more bluntly like this. You and I, we cannot show up on a Sunday morning and come to a service and be spectators of everything that's going on here and assume that we're worshiping God in an acceptable manner. Because acceptable worship, this author is telling us, it involves a real moving towards other people. It involves a real moving towards knowing and being known by others. Immersion in a community where self-denial and showing grace are required. The Bible tells us we need each other. We need each other. What we need to make it through this broken, hard life is to be a part of a community that has experienced God's grace in the person and work of Jesus. The Bible is saying the way for you and me to experience the very presence of God is by participating in and practicing community with one another. Because only then 
Will our worship be acceptable before God? So I want us to notice four brief things about the practice of community. I'm going to give them to you here and then I'll repeat them as we go. First, I want us to talk about the depth of community um, that the author talks about here. The depth of community. And then second, the openness of community. Third, the ethic of community. And finally, the power of community. Where do we find the power to live like this? Um, First, the depth of community. The author of Hebrews wrote in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Um, or, Or maybe another translation, keep on loving each other as brothers. Not keep on loving each other as acquaintances. But as brothers, the Greek word there is Philadelphia. It's why we refer to that city as the city of brotherly love. Um, And it's probably obvious to you right from the start why I'm calling this first point the depth of community. Because the author is saying, take what you know about family and apply the depth of those relationships to your relationships with other believers. I know that not everyone in this room grew up with siblings, but a lot of us did. And, um, and so we have a point of reference for what he's talking about here. Relationships with brothers and sisters. I, I have one brother and two, two sisters. Um, they can be uncomfortably close, right? When you're growing up with brothers and sisters, they are constantly invading your privacy. They're constantly intruding in on your space. They're constantly opening closed doors when they shouldn't, right? These are the people in your life that have absolutely no illusions about you. They've seen you at your worst. They've seen you without your makeup on. They've seen how petty and how moody you really can be. Um, Everyone out in the world might think you're so great. But listen, your siblings, they're the ones that have all the dirt on you. And they could destroy you in a second. Um, Right? Listen, in a family, you do everything together. You share everything. You go everywhere together. You play, you eat, you study, you argue, you forgive. You do all of these things together. You make decisions together. And some of you in this room may not even like your siblings. I get that. You feel like they have nothing in common with you. Okay, but you... But my argument is you still feel a deep sense of obligation to your brothers and sisters and your family, even if you don't like them, even if you don't share anything in common with them, because you feel deep inside, I should get along with them. I wish we had a better relationship because they're your blood. And the Bible says when you become a Christian by trusting in the blood of Jesus shed for you, That does not make you acquaintances with other believers. That makes them family. You are bound together through the blood of Jesus. In the second century, um, a writer named Lucian of Samosata, um, who was, was especially scornful of Christians, and he wrote this satire called The Passing of Peregrinus. And I just want to read you a quote from that work. This is what he, what he wrote. He says, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary, 
voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and they worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Second century, somebody who's not a Christian, but what he observes about Christianity. See, even the enemies of Christianity recognize the radical depth of community among Jesus' followers. They are brothers. They shared their lives. They shared their resources with one another. They let one another intrude into their lives and invade their space and their privacy. They took on each other's burdens and they met each other's needs. Listen, to practice this kind of deep community, it at least starts with you and I figuring out how to take relational risks and putting ourselves out there. Right? It involves moving towards people in such a way that you let them know you. And not just the good parts about you, the nice parts about you, but letting them into the mess and the hardness and the struggle. It also means you, are to, you and I are to pay attention to the needs of those around us. Those who may be among us who, look, who are lonely, or discouraged, or hurting, and we are to look for ways to enter into those spaces, into that mess, so that we can serve our brothers and sisters. And listen, we, we could go on and on and come up with a long list of examples of ways that we can move towards one another in this deeper community. But before we leave this, this point, I do think it's important that I, that I offer you this warning. Um, to practice deep community like this, it's going to feel uncomfortable for you. It always does. To risk being known is going to trigger your shame at some level. It's going to feel like your privacy is invaded and it's uncomfortable when you take on the burdens of others, whether those burdens be physical or emotional or spiritual or psychological or financial or whatever. It's going to force you to adjust your life in sacrificial ways that will feel very costly and painful to you at times. And so here's what I would say, is if you aren't feeling that uncomfortableness at some level, if you aren't putting yourselves out there in such a way that it does make you feel uncomfortable, you've got to ask yourself, am I practicing the kind of community that Jesus is talking about? And is therefore the truest expression of both my humanity and what it means to have been redeemed in Jesus' blood. We've got to move on, but listen, the crucified sage that Lu Lucian of Samosata wrote about, that's very clearly Jesus. And I want you to think about this. To what extent did He give up His rights for you? Because He did not tithe His blood for you. The depth of His love for you his identification with you, it cost him everything. All right, second, let's talk about the openness of community. Um, so make a little progress. Not the second century, but the third century now. In the third century, Christianity is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And 
the Roman Emperor Julian, um, he wanted to tear down the influence of Christianity and restore Neoplatonic uh, paganism in Rome. And so this is what he wrote. These impious Galileans, or Christians, not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Welcoming them into their agape, they attract them. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Christians devote themselves to charity. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the indigent. Uh, indigent. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. He was saying Rome was losing its influence because, of, because there's something unique about Christianity that makes their community open to everyone makes it radically open, open to people not like them, open to the poor and to the suffering, and open to people who don't believe like them, um, and don't believe the things they believe. And this is where I think we tend to get a lump in our throats, because it's one thing for you to make yourself vulnerable to those who believe like you, or those who are like you in some way. But vulnerability to outsiders, that can be dangerous, right? And really dangerous for the people the author of Hebrews is writing to in this letter. Because this was written during a time of intense persecution. When letting someone in could betray you to your death, right? And if you can read Greek, this openness of community, it, it, it's crystal clear. Because in verse 1, the author wrote, and we talked about this word, practice Philadelphia, brotherly love. But in verse 2, he writes, do not neglect to practice philoxenia. Okay? The same root word, in other words. Philoxenia, love of strangers. Right? Xenia, that's what it is. Foreigners, strangers, outsiders, people of other races, people who are not like you. And the author is saying that Christianity somehow creates a community that is characterized by openness, by hospitality, by welcome, by making room for strangers. And he illustrates all of this in our passage with this story from Abraham's life when he invited these strangers into his home. And they turned out to be angels. And you can Read the story later if you want. It's in Genesis chapter 18. But, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, you don't find angels by going and looking for angels. It's only when you go out looking for strangers that you find angels. It's only when you embrace the gospel call of radical, vulnerable, open community that you move into greater depths of understanding God's radical, vulnerable openness to you in Jesus. It's only when you seek to meet the needs of those who have no way of meeting your own needs that you find all of your needs are met in Jesus. And verse 3 tells us that our openness of community, it is to be extended to those in prison and those mistreated. It is to move out in radical identification with the poor, the destitute, the suffering, the mistreated, as well as people not like us. And you know, I think I, I get the Emperor Julian's question. What is so uniquely different about Christianity that makes it open like this? Um, what is it that's so fundamentally different about Christianity that would leave 
people to move out of their comfortable spaces in their lives towards the unlovable and the broken and the needy? What's so fundamentally different about Christianity that would cause people to embrace others not like them? People who don't even believe the same things. Years ago, I don't know how many years ago it was, but it was in the aftermath of 9-11. And I remember Dr. Timothy Keller, pastor in Manhattan, sharing a valuable insight that he got from his wife, Kathy, as they were talking about things. Because in the aftermath of that horrific day, there was a lot of rhetoric floating around about how it's people with fundamentals who are the problem in our world today, right? Islamic fundamentalism. But Kathy Keller very wisely said, she said this, it's not true. Fundamentals aren't the problem. Everything depends on what your fundamental is. Because if your fundamental is a man dying on a cross, then that should lead you to openness. Our fundamental is one of God's radical, vulnerable openness to us. When God took on flesh, In the person of Jesus, God didn't just become touchable and holdable and huggable and kissable. He also became vulnerable and hurtable and beatable and killable. And he did that for us so that he could welcome strangers in, strangers and enemies and outcasts and misfits all the way in. And here's what this means. If you don't believe what I just said about Jesus' work, You are welcome here. And not to be tolerated. And not to be treated as a project. But you're welcome into this community to take your time and examine the claims of Jesus. We want to be that kind of open open community. And this means that if you come to South Baton Rouge and you find yourself to be in the minority, whether that's racially or economically or culturally, you're welcome here. Right. It also means that if you've blown it at life, right, and you're on your third marriage and your second bankruptcy and your last pack of cigarettes, uh, whatever it is, you're welcome here. We're open. And not only if you've blown it, are you welcome here, but if you if your life is nothing but success for you, if it's been nothing but success and you don't even understand why you would possibly need Jesus, you're welcome here to figure those things out. Listen, that's what we want to be. We want to be a community so liberated and freed by God's love for us that we become radically open to people not like us, to people who are hurting and people who are mistreated and people who are searching and people who are lonely and people who are suffering. Um, I, I was talking to someone earlier this week about apologetics, you know, arguments for Christianity and the truth of Christianity. And and I really like thinking through that stuff, and and I think it's important. But I love thinking about apologetics. But listen, you know, at the end of the day, I have seen very, very few people argued into God's kingdom. And I have seen a lot of people loved into God's kingdom. And that is what we are called to do. That's the kind of place we want to be. A place of openness. All right, third, and let me pick up a little speed here. Let's talk about the ethic of community. Uh, love of brothers, love of strangers, and then all of a sudden the author starts talking about what most of us, I think, in this room would consider to be very private matters. 
sexuality, and money. And listen, those two matters, um, they're just examples for the author, right? But by using those two examples, you see, he basically hits everybody in the room. And I want you to think about how this plays out in our American political landscape. And before I say this, these are stereotypes. So I know that everyone in, in this room, your views are, are very nuanced to this. So I'm just throwing that out there so you don't have to talk to me after the service about it. But uh, anyway, in our American political landscape, right, on the one side of the political spectrum, we hear something like this. We have a lot to say to you about your sexual ethics. But don't you dare talk to me about my money. And then on the other side of the political spectrum, we hear something like this. We'll very happily tell you what we're going to do with your money. But don't you dare talk to me about my sexuality. Right? See, the author, by taking these two things as examples, he's implicating everyone, whether you consider yourself a conservative or a liberal, and he wants to implicate everyone because he wants us to see that there is no such thing as a private sin. No matter who you are, your sin always affects the whole community. I can't treat this fully, but let's just think about it briefly. The author of Hebrews wrote, the marriage bed should be held in honor. He's saying there should be radical commitment in our most fundamental of relationships. What's going on when you engage in a sexual relationship outside of the bond of marriage? And I don't care how you gloss it up, but you are using each other. Right? You're saying, I want physical intimacy with you, but I am not willing to commit my whole self to you. And when we use each other, we're treating other people as objects to be used instead of persons. And that affects and undermines the whole community. The building block of society and community is the family, period. There's no way around it. And where there is no commitment there, it's like setting off dynamite in the bottom of a skyscraper. And the whole thing is going to come crashing down on itself. But think about greed or the love of money. Most of us live day in and day out in a world that is dominated by greed. And what do you see in the professional world? You see people abused, you see people stepped on, you see people stabbed in the back, all in an effort to get ahead. More, you see more and more people using their money to isolate from community rather than be immersed in it. Because money certainly can be used to strengthen community, but the love of money destroys community every time. There's no such thing as a private sin, no matter who you are. In two of the most prominent areas where we tend to say, don't talk to me about these things. No one has the right to, to question me about these things. The author is saying we're accountable to one another. Right? There's a real ethic to our community. There's a story in Joshua chapter 7. It's a fascinating story. Um, the nation of Israel had just gone out to battle. And they were crushed. They were decimated. Thousands died. And so Joshua prayed and he asked the Lord why they were defeated. And this is what God said to Joshua. He said, Israel has sinned. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And it's all in the plural 
And so you start asking yourself as you're reading this story, how did everyone in the nation of Israel do this? And, you know, and then you realize it was just one man named Achan who took the devoted things and stole and lied. One guy. And thousands of people died on the battlefield because of his sin. And in the end of that story, God told Joshua that the nation of Israel was to get together and stone Achan and his family and all his livestock and then burn them. Now, that may raise some questions for you uh, that we can't answer today. But I, I just want you to think about this. If you were there and you are a part of Israel picking up rocks and hurling them at this man and his family and his livestock, I'm betting that at least one thought would have worked its way through your mind. And that is, there is no such thing as a private sin. Please, please give up the idea that you're looking at porn on your computer or you're holding on to your bitterness or you're telling little white lies or your selfish spending of your money or cutting corners at work doesn't affect anybody else. It affects everyone. Right? There's no such thing as a private sin. And so this community did this community that we're talking about, it doesn't just love each other and it doesn't just practice openness with strangers, but this community practices real accountability. There's so many applications, but I'll give you just one. Some of you in this room, you feel trapped, I know, in your life um, by particular sins. Uh, maybe even some of the ones we just mentioned. And you feel like you can't get free of it no matter how hard you try. You know what you need? You need community. You need friends. You need a friend you can share your struggles with. Because your sin and mine, it loves hiding in the dark. But it always loses its power when it's brought out into the light of the community that both loves and holds accountable. All right, finally, let's talk about the power of community. Um, to actually do all the things we've talked about this morning, where do you get the power? Verses 5 and 6 are quotes from the Old Testament, actually the book of Joshua that we just mentioned. But you see that little word for in the middle of verse 5, which could also be translated because. So he says, the author says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for or because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That little phrase, I will never leave you or forsake you, it, it's almost impossible to get an English translation that is as strong as it is in the Greek. Because the author, in that little phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he doesn't just use one negative. He doesn't just use two negatives. But five negatives in that little phrase. Because this is literally what he's writing. Literally, it reads like this. For God has said, I will never, never leave you. And I will never, never, never forsake you. And my point here is that when that truth settles into your heart, 
That he will never, never leave you. That he will never, never, never forsake you. When that settles into your heart, it sets you free. And at the end of the day, you say, what could man possibly do to me? And we find the power to practice deep, open, and accountable community with one another. Let me me end with a little story. When my oldest daughter, Kennedy, it's good, I'm getting rid of some kid illustrations while they're still stuck in Memphis. Uh, So, uh, when my oldest daughter, Kennedy, was three years old, we went over to this friend's house. It, it, he had a lake house. And we went over there and we were fishing on the dock. And as we're fishing on the dock, all of a sudden we heard this splash. Kennedy, who didn't know how to swim, had somehow managed to take a step backwards and fell off the pier and into the water. And I turned around just in enough time to catch a glimpse of her terrified face as she went under the water. Um, And I didn't even have time to think about it. And the next thing I knew, I was in the water with her, right? And my iPhone was gone at that moment. Um, And I I was lifting this terrified little girl back to safety on the dock, right? I'm her daddy. I don't have to think about those things. You just go get in the water and you get her out and you bring her safety. A couple weeks went by after this had happened, and we were getting ready to go to the same friend's house again. And so my wife was buckling her into her car seat in the back of the car, and it seemed only fair that we warn her that we would be returning to the scene of the crime, you know, and um, back to the place where she had been so scared. Um, So as we're telling her this, and as we're buckling her in, she looked at my wife and she said, She said, Mama, we need to bring some clothes just in case I fall in the lake again. And it was a beautiful moment because there was absolutely no fear in her voice at all. She wasn't forever scarred or traumatized by that experience. And and you know why? She knew that if anything happened to her, her daddy would be in the water in a heartbeat to get her. And so what she was saying is, all I really need is a change of clothes, right? What if you really believed, I mean, deep in your bones, that God would never, never leave you? That He would never, never, never forsake you? You would be free. And you would find the power to live out this call to deep, open, accountable community. To live like this, you've got to take risks relationally. But you and I are set free in Jesus to take those risks. Free and empowered to take those risks because God Himself came in the flesh. And He was swallowed up in the gathering storms and waters of God's justice on the cross. And He will never leave you nor forsake you because He was forsaken in your place on the cross. He cried out, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for you so that you would never, never, 
never be forsaken. And if you embrace that good news, and we embrace that good news, it will change us and lead us to deeper worship with our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Let's pray together.